Hello and welcome to Collier Bristow's latest Litigation Conversations podcast. I'm Robin Henry, Head of the Dispute Resolution Department, and I'm joined by Tammy Davis. Tammy, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm an associate in Robin's team, and we specialize in dealing with disputes in the financial services industry. So in today's episode, we're going to be discussing non-financial misconduct, with a particular focus on how the FCA are developing their regulatory scope in this area. This is a really hot topic at the moment, and there's been heavy involvement by the Treasury. So it's really important that anyone who works in financial services or has a particular interest in this field is staying up to date on these developments. So I think a good starting point would be for us to explain what non-financial misconduct is and how it's currently regulated by the FCA. Yes. So non-financial misconduct isn't clearly defined by the FCA. It's a broad term that encompasses a range of behaviours relating to a person's honesty, integrity and reputation. But it's not financial misconduct like fraud or embezzlement. So what we're talking about here is conduct such as sexual harassment, bullying and discrimination. Now, the FCA currently regulate non-financial misconduct through their fitness and proprietary test. In essence, firms must be satisfied on an ongoing basis that individuals carrying out approved FCA functions or candidates for those roles are fit and proper to carry out their role. Now, apart from competence and financial soundness, the FCA have said that an important consideration is a person's honesty, integrity, and reputation. And that's the part of the test which is relevant to non-financial misconduct. The FCA guidance is quite vague. It does, for example, refer to criminal convictions being taken into account, but the general focus is on previous misconduct in relation to financial services. It sounds like a case-by-case approach might cause a lack of consistency in how non-financial misconduct uh, is handled by the FCA. Uh, Yes, this has been a problem in the past, particularly when the FCA has to consider whether an individual's private life is relevant. So just to give you a couple of examples which exemplify this problem uh, and which show different outcomes which some people might find surprising. So a guy called Jonathan Burrows was an investment manager who failed the fit and proper test because he didn't buy a proper train ticket. And that fell under the remit of financial dishonesty. In contrast, John Frensham was a financial advisor who was convicted and imprisoned for child sexual offences. This regulatory case ended up before the upper tribunal, which found that Frensham did fail the fit and proper test, but not by reason of his conduct alone. Rather, it was the accompanying offences of dishonesty, as he had, for example, not disclosed his offence to the FCA and he had breached his bail conditions, and it was that which led him to fail the test. I think some of our listeners might, as I certainly initially was, be quite shocked at that disparity. But I suppose what we have to consider is that when the FCA are dealing with non-financial misconduct, it's in the context of their regulatory scope, and that is somewhat restricted. So a serious criminal offence may not mean that someone will automatically fail the fit test the FCA have to prove a causal link between the misconduct and the regulatory principles. So for Mr. Fredsham, the tribunal said that his offence would undermine public confidence in the financial services industry and would damage its professional reputation. But they found there was inadequate evidence to suggest that exploiting a vulnerable child 
would automatically mean he would exploit a vulnerable client. So as Robin mentioned earlier, it it is quite a nuanced test and decisions are going to differ on a case-by-case basis. And that's why it's so important that we're continuously looking at cases that arise, because sometimes seeing what doesn't amount to non-financial misconduct that can provide us with the most guidance, especially when the FCA haven't yet provided clear examples and definitions. Thanks. And that brings us on nicely to cover the FCA's new approach to non-financial misconduct, because it's partially that lack of guidance and clarity that has meant the FCA are now trying to clarify and strengthen the FCA's expectations around non-financial misconduct. In September last year, the FCA published a consultation paper which set out their proposals to better integrate non-financial misconduct into the regulatory scheme. There are three main proposals to change the rules and guidance, and they relate to the fit and proper test, suitability threshold condition, and the conduct rules. So looking first at the fit and proper test, the FCA is seeking to reduce inconsistencies in how their guidance is interpreted and applied. Although they haven't finalised new guidance, uh, it should come into force in 2025. The proposals in which they are consulting provide a good idea of their direction of travel. And as for the suitability threshold, now we haven't yet covered this in our podcast series, so I'll just give you a very brief overview. Under uh, FISMA, there are five threshold conditions that the FCA requires a firm to meet to become authorised to undertake any regulated activity. And one of these conditions is suitability, which is defined as requiring the firm itself to be a fit and proper person. So the FCA is going to be looking at fitness and propriety, not only when it comes to individuals, but also regulated firms. The FCA handbook lists many examples of what the FCA may have regard to when making their assessment of a firm, but at the moment, there's no specific reference to non-financial misconduct. So the FCA have said they're going to expand the existing guidance to include non-financial misconduct, such as sexually or racially motivated offences or findings of discrimination. And Robin, I'm sure you agree that this is a huge step in the right direction. It could mean that if a firm employs someone who commits non-financial misconduct, the FCA can impose serious regulatory sanctions and even cancel their permission to carry on regulated activities. Of course, like with the fit and proper test for individuals, the devil is in the detail. But it definitely highlights how this should be a priority for all firms. We really would advise anyone listening to review your policies, ensure you're complying with the new guidance when it's published, and to provide thorough training and support for employees at all levels. Yes, absolutely. So uh, moving on to the final proposal, the FCA are proposing to expressly refer to non-financial misconduct in its conduct rules, which apply to a wider range of people than the fit and proper test. It applies not only to staff who are carrying on regulated activities, but to anyone whose job involves financial services activity. So it could include back office workers, but would exclude cleaners and receptionists, for example. Now, there are six conduct rules, but currently they're mostly limited to a firm's financial activities. But the FCAs have said that they're going to expand the scope of the conduct rules to include serious instances of bullying and harassment. So, for example, rule one, is that you must act with integrity, which basically means currently that 
you're not to mislead anyone about the financial services you are providing. But what they're proposing is that it will prohibit conduct that is intimidating, violent, or offensive. And what the FCA is saying is, this is our business as a regulator, because if you are creating a malicious or intimidating working environment, then you're not acting with integrity. And in their guidance, the FCA provided some examples of conduct that will fall within the scope of these updated conduct rules. So for example, it will be in scope if the misconduct towards a fellow staff member occurs at a social event that is organised by the firm, but not at a social occasion between colleagues that was organised in a personal capacity. That's right, Tammy. And it's vital that firms make sure that they are complying with the conduct rules. Although the FCA have said that they will only take disciplinary action for serious breaches of the conduct rules, firms still need to be notifying the FCA if there's been any breach. Again, the FCA are predictably vague when it comes to providing guidance and examples of what constitutes a serious breach, but they are suggesting that factors uh, will include whether the misconduct is repeated, the duration of the conduct, and the extent of the impact of that conduct. What is really interesting and actually at odds with the usual employment law principles is that the FCA are focusing on intention, not effect. For example, they've confirmed that misconduct might not breach the conduct rules if the alleged perpetrator thought there was a good and proper reason for their conduct or if they did not realise the impact that their conduct was having. Now, Robin and I have struggled to think of good and proper reasons for bullying and harassment. And it's also worth noting that the emphasis on intention will mean that the burden of proof is put squarely on the complainant rather than the alleged perpetrator. And that's something that could seriously blunt the effectiveness of these changes. So I think it's pretty likely that these changes are going to be brought in by the FCA next year in much the same form um, that they are currently proposing. But we will have then have to wait for some time before there are both FCA decisions and decisions of the court to show exactly how they are going to be implemented. Now, this isn't the first time we've spoken about non-financial misconduct. Robin's discussed this in some length at two of our financial services seminars. And we've also co-authored an article on this topic. And when we've previously covered non-financial misconduct, we've received some really interesting questions. And so we thought it might be helpful to some of you if we touch on a couple of those now. Of course, if you have any other questions, then please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. So, Robin, question number one. Why? What has triggered the FCA's recent commitment to regulating non-financial misconduct? Thanks. That's a great question. Uh, Well, there are a few reasons. Well, first of all, it's no secret that the financial services industry has had a pretty terrible reputation for bullying and harassment over the years. And the FCA is clearly responding to political pressure from Parliament and the wider public, which is saying this kind of thing cannot be allowed to go on. The Treasury Select Committee is uh, very interested in this, and they have uh, had an inquiry called Sexism in the City that is looking at the barriers faced by women in financial services, and that includes discriminatory alpha male workplace cultures. As many of our listeners will know, the prominent hedge fund manager, Crispin Odie, made headlines as he was recently accused of sexual misconduct. And following that, many investors withdrew their funds from the Odie asset management firm. 
I suppose it's not surprising that a regulator that primarily exists to protect consumers is going to want to reflect and adhere to the public's values and priorities. Of course. I mean, the FCA is a body set up by Parliament and it is publicly funded. The challenge for the FCA is to be seen to be taking action in this area while remaining within their statutory remit as a financial services regulator. Nicol Rathby, the FCA's chief executive, was actually questioned by the Treasury Committee at that inquiry you just mentioned. And he said that cultures where sexual harassment is not challenged are not conductive to sound risk management. So it seems like the reputation of the financial services industry is also a big consideration. That's exactly right. What the FCA is saying is maintaining public confidence in the financial system is crucial. And individuals who commit non-financial misconduct pose a risk to that confidence. And that, they say, is incompatible with the FCA's objectives and statutory requirement. Thanks, Robin. Uh, Another frequently asked question we receive is, should the FCA even be dealing with non-financial misconduct? Is this not why we have the police, HR and employment tribunals? Why does the FCA need to get involved? Uh, Yes, I remember that question specifically from one of our seminars. Um, People were quite heated about that issue. But I think what the FCA are doing isn't really that controversial. Their proposed approach is actually consistent with what other regulators have already been doing, such as the Solicitors Regulatory Authority and the Bar Standards Board. And in 2020, the High Court publicly endorsed uh, the regulation of professions by reference to private conduct because it said it was ultimately in the public interest. However, there are limits. In the same case, the court said that the regulatory framework can't extend beyond what is necessary to regulate professional conduct and fitness to practice. Going back to what I said before, the FCA are now propose that misconduct in a purely private setting may be relevant for the fit and proper test. And how they have managed to fit that test into the regulatory scope is to say misconduct outside the regulatory system may show the person lacks moral soundness, rectitude, and steady adherence to an ethical code, which in turn raises doubts as to whether they will follow the requirements of an ethical system. Now, that's stretching things, you might think, for the FCA's remit. And it's going to be an interesting question as to see how ultimately that wording is interpreted by the courts in the future. I agree. The FCA are not an alternative to criminal proceedings or a firm's internal disciplinary procedures, but they can serve as an important additional recourse for victims. And the FCA clearly have enough evidence to show that diverse, healthy and psychologically safe working environments promote sound organisation of financial services. Yeah, that's right. And I think a major part of the FCA's strategy is to hope that the introduction of these new, new rules will act as a deterrent to some of the misconduct which has been allowed to happen in the past. We certainly welcome these developments and we look forward to the FCA confirming the results of their consultation. So we're almost at the end of this episode, but one last thing I want to know, Robin, is if there was one takeaway message you wanted our listeners to remember, what would it be? I think it's to be vigilant. There's going to be a lot of changes in this area happening over the next 12 months. uh, And it's crucial that we all stay up to date with them. And it's important for firms to take action now 
and think about their potential impact. Firms are going to be under scrutiny and they may be liable for failing to adequately deal with non-financial misconduct. Thanks, Robin. And, and I certainly echo your thoughts. I don't think the FCA are going to tread lightly on this one. So that brings us to the end of today's episode on non-financial misconduct. Thanks for joining us today. And if you have any questions or comments, then please do reach out. Our contact details are in the show notes. Mm-hmm.